0: I had German measles while I was expecting her. We were very fearful about the outcome and prayed a lot about that. That was a time when I really felt like I needed His presence. He was there. This is In Good
1: Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On
2: In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking today in good faith with the current chair of the Salt Lake Interfaith Roundtable, Josie Stone. Josie, thank you so much for coming in today.
0: It's my pleasure to be here.
2: We're going to talk about the beginnings of your life and your faith life and interfaith work in general. But I was quite charmed as I looked through your bio and you talked about at the beginning of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. in the UK, yes, really doing without, but that if you could make even a hairband from a shred of a parachute or something, tell me about that.
0: Well, I was born the very month that war was declared with Germany and England, and my mother had four other children. I always think how terrible that time must have been for a family, that fear of, of war happening. Anyway, I was born that very month. So, of course, grew up during the war areas where there was sufficient food, but no, certainly not an overwhelming amount. Mm. So I started school at four and a half, and we had to carry a gas mask for so one whole year. We took our, it was our constant companion over our shoulder was our gas mask. And then at the end of the war, of course, there was still a lot of deprivation and rationing and uh, so – but everybody was in the same boat. So it wasn't as though you were singled out as a family, mm. that you didn't have enough. But lots of things happened during that time, obviously, that were very emotional for people, just to have survived the war years, returning soldiers. We were fortunate that my father was a farmer and did not have to go into the military. But he did have to leave every afternoon to man the searchlights on the coast because we lived on the coast. And so we did not see him very much. And my mother was really responsible for taking us to the air raid shelter the numerous times that that was needed during those war years. So it was a, a, you know, I vaguely remember it was rather an exciting time. But, of course, it wasn't for our parents and uh, and the families in general. But
2: During that time, could people assemble? Were there church services held?
0: There were. There were. And of course, the churches were well attended, as they are when in times of stress occur in a nation. But it was also a social requirement, really, to uh, Church of England, you know, you, if you, you went to church. Typically, our family did, although my dad not so much, but my mother. So we were pretty structured in that sense, and we joined a Sunday school. And, of course, our Sunday school classes were held in these very old churches. And in our particular village, there were two, one that was very dilapidated and sort of half the wall standing, but it had been abandoned during the plague years, and a new church had been built. So that added some excitement to the the area. But it was also there, and I think I mentioned to you in my bio, that my baby sister had died, and here was her little tiny grave in this churchyard amongst all of the other graves. And, and that was very memorable to me as a child, that, you know, why why would that have happened? And uh, it brought such huge sadness to our family. So what God is it that we're talking about that would allow that to happen? But we had prayers at school, of course. You know, that was a, a, the a start of the day. It was a prayer assembly. And then we, it was followed by reciting our fractions, you know, and times tables. But <laughs> during the prayer time, one of the things we did was to say the Lord's Prayer. And of course, you never saw the words as a child. It wasn't screened or anything like that. You'd learnt it by rote from somebody else. So for some years, I thought instead of our Father who art in heaven, it was our Father with charts in heaven. And I really thought that sounded quite reasonable that he was up there with his charts. (laughs) charts. (laughs) So I was quite surprised when I saw it actually written out that it wasn't the charts in heaven.
2: I could see him keeping track of us on our list of balances of good good and ill.
0: Absolutely.
2: (laughs) You have your life where you're growing up in a church environment. Mm -hmm. But parallel to that is also a personal spiritual
0: path. Yes.
2: Did you always believe in God or did that wane or strengthen at different times?
0: I always believed in God, but it did wane and strengthen, obviously, as as life went on through the years. But I always was a firm believer. I don't really know what made me so, other than that, you know, we had our Sunday school structure. I was confirmed when I was 11, which is quite a a growing time for somebody in, in our particular faith. And you go to classes for that, and then you are able to take the communion, the sacrament at the services. And... The bishop installs you into that position. So that was a a proud day for me. Mm. Then it continued on. But certainly during my teenage years, it was not so exciting, especially when my mother made us do Sunday school and church. You know, that was rather purgatory. But it was when I went away to college some years later that I thought, I need to just find out about some other religions. Because I always felt like the Church of England did not have a handle on that. And, of course, Britain was primarily, except for Ireland, was very Church of England, although there was a Catholic branch, obviously. But we used to sort of refer to those as those Catholics. So there was a certain amount of prejudice about your faith. And also, there were chapels. They weren't called churches. They were called chapels that were Baptist and Methodist and and Wesleyan. To this day, I'm not sure why they were sort of segmented out like that, you know. But of course, the Church of England, you know, stood out. It's the Queen and the King. And so, when I was in college, I knew there was more than that, and so I went to some of those other services and uh, really began to sort of experiment and learn more about. Our Christian churches, not so much other faiths, because at that time there wasn't an opportunity to do that. Right, And then shortly after I graduated as a teacher, I met my future husband, and he's an American serviceman, so of course we eventually moved here, and then I had four children very quickly, so time for getting absorbed in a lot of extracurricular activities was was minimal. but. Even though my husband was agnostic, he was perfectly acceptable of my faith, and our children were baptized and went through Sunday school just as I had been in my youth as well.
2: Did you make them do Sunday school and church? (laughs) No. (laughs) Maybe for our listeners who might not know, what is the relationship of the Anglican Church, Church of England, and Episcopalian?
0: Well, um, when the first people came to the East Coast to get away from George III, they brought their Anglican faith with them, but they continued to have to pay taxes back to England. And so after time, that became very burdensome. And so they actually segmented into another church that is based on the Anglican faith, but called Episcopal because we are Episcopalian hard word to get your tongue around, Episcopalian. So now there are still Anglican churches and there are the Episcopalian churches, almost identical in their liturgies and so forth. But um, there has been a schism in the Episcopal church just recently where a certain... Things that are acceptable now to the Episcopal Church are not acceptable to the Anglican Church, particularly those that come from, like, African countries. And so we still have this divide between the two, the Anglican Episcopalian here in the United States and elsewhere in the world.
2: I wonder, as you look back from your experience uh, from your college days till now and having raised a family and all of that, are there experiences or times when you think— as I look back, I see God was leading me, or I see the hand of God in my life, occasionally or even daily, whatever it might be.
0: Yes, actually, I've I've always seen that. Um, it has been very easy for me to to feel and visualize, and uh, but there are certain times when you you feel it more deeply. Certain mm. experiences in your life. My uh, fourth child, I had German measles while I was expecting her, Ooh. so. We were very fearful about the outcome and prayed a lot about that. Even my husband, <laughs> and uh, it, she's deaf, but that was really a minimal thing compared to what it could have been. But that was a time when I really felt like I needed his presence. Yes, he was there.
2: That's beautiful yeah. to hear.
0: Yeah. and but other times like that, maybe it's just being you know a child who was difficult for a while, and you think, oh, please help me, God. <laughs> um, I, however, don't feel that God is the person who should answer everything you request of Him. Uh I feel that we were placed on this earth into a place that allowed us to be able to live and grow here. And we are responsible for ourselves. And we can ask His guidance, we can ask for His blessing, and certainly we will get help on many occasions. But I don't think when people say, Why did God so let me down? or Why did God let me have cancer? That wouldn't have been anything I feel that who is the God that would be his decision to make. It's like wars and so forth, that is entirely a human thing. Mm. It's our responsibility. So, how we manage our lives, how we manage this world, how we manage our food supply is our responsibility. There aren't those that are blessed by God more than other people are blessed by God, but we make it so. We make it so that we have the affluence and we can you know, have plenty of food, but we don't make it. There's plenty of food in the world for everybody in this world, but it is not. there's no equality there. It's not equal, and I, that concerns me hugely. And that should be our work. That should be our work. That mm. should be our work. And I, I have hope in the millennials that they begin to see that. I think that they and the generation coming up behind them have— A different world perspective, more of equality and more of sharing and uh, more of, of understanding where other people are at rather than necessarily me all the time.
2: And as we were setting up, you mentioned some in this generation who may say that they're not even believers. But seem to have a very spiritual world view.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and we see it in our own church. I mean, ours is a very old, established church. There's a very strong liturgy associated with it, and so a very formal program. But young people don't; they're not interested in that. They want to show their spirituality, and many of them are very spiritual, but they have no faith that they dedicate themselves to necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they have this inner core in them that knows that there is something more than themselves, and uh, that they just need to direct that. And we see it in the roundtable because we're really encouraging young people to be a part of that. But they don't want to sit around and talk all the time. They want to be doing something, <laughs> whether it's helping people mm-hmm. with food, whether it's just helping whatever area they want to go to, that there's some social issues that they can impact through this spirituality or this feeling they have within them, that there's something greater than themselves.
2: You wrote that you had been fascinated by religious mystery and finding that in different faiths and or different denominations. What does that word mean to you or what what do you feel that's appealing to you or that you connect with?
0: I think when I first felt that and I think I told you that we didn't have TV and very little radio but we had the encyclopedias, you know, which Ah. were marvelous. And it was in there we learned about the other countries. And then geography is stressed in the English education program. Every day you get geography for all the years you're in a, a secondary school. So we learned a lot about religion related to those countries. But it was why do they have the caste system in India, for instance? You know, uh. Why are there such a multiplicity of religions in India? That intrigued me so much. W- what is different between them? And because coming from a country where there was really one religion for the most part, that was fascinating. And how do they practice that religion? And how, how does like music play a big part in that or, or their prayer or the service? I mean, for instance, the Sikh people, I mean, they, they are the service people of our world. That religion is for service, providing the food at the Golden Temple every day, you know, for thousands mm. and thousands of people. And we have a large Sikh population here in Salt Lake that does the same thing. They are open to the public for meals on their worship day, and they are very, very giving people. So all of the those traits intrigued me, intrigued me. And so as I became older, then I wanted to know more. And that's when I started taking classes in world religions. Um, One interesting aspect of that is probably around... uh, in the 1990s one of my children were taking a religion class and i didn't think for one minute she would finish it so i said well i'll take it with you and um, we never learned who our what faith our educator was but in that class we did all these religions but ran out of time and did not study islam Which today, that would be the first one you could study. So the cultural changes that have happened over, you know, the last decade or so, uh, more than that, maybe 30 years, uh, have changed the way we look at the world and what we know about different people. We should know about Islam and all the people from the Middle East. But we concentrated on Japan and we concentrated on Spanish religion from South America. But today that wouldn't be the case.
2: You spent a good deal of your professional life as a nurse. I did, and do. I think people in those times often of stress, you must see different people's levels of yearning for God or depending on God Uh in those stressful situations.
0: Mm -hmm. That uh, my um, clinical nursing career has been probably one of the most defining times of my life in terms of my faith. And I started out in the neonatal intensive care unit. Mm. So if you really want to look at (laughs) humanity and what we really are and how we're made, that is the place to go because these little tiny, tiny babies, you know, one pound, two pounds, fighting for their life, but all of their bodily Everything works in their body, you know, it's just intriguing to me. But it just defines there is more than just reproduction of a baby from, you know, conception on. There is more behind it than that. And uh, that struggle for life just is what I think we all have to do. But you see it then and it's very raw and it's very emotional and not only for the parents, but for the caretakers as well. So I think then I thought, you know, I already knew a God exists, but it really emphasized for me that there is a God out there and we are made in an image of something that we just cannot visualize, that we're so perfect. And if part of it is disrupted for some reason for a disease process, other parts of the body will try to overcome that disability. That is an intriguing feature to me as well. Hmm.
2: Let me shift gears slightly and talk about what got you involved in interfaith work.
0: Well, I'd had this passion of wanting to know more about different faiths. And I moved from California to Salt Lake City 15 years ago and started to attend the cathedral downtown, the Episcopal Cathedral. And one of the ministers there was a member of the Interfaith Roundtable and had been since the inception of the, the program at the time of the 2002 Olympics. And she said, I think you would like to come to this meeting. So I went, and the very first meeting I was just captivated. So I just went as a visitor, you know, and, uh, to them, and then eventually volunteered for certain—
2: Captivated by what?
0: The diversity— Mm. And uh, I had come like many people probably do. I knew nothing about Salt Lake. I came here for a job, and uh, I knew that it was LDS or Mormon uh, uh, State, but I probably assumed everybody was. And then I came here and found, well, no, there were other faiths here. And um, so that was intriguing, and I suppose that's what held me to want to be part of that because here were Hindus, Buddhists, Jewish people, Christian people, people of very small faith groups, all getting together and getting along. there are i think forty eight different faiths in our city and valley, some of them quite small, but uh, many you know very large faiths and large groups of people and it really was an example to me of how a community should live. Mm. And here with the LDS, certainly a majority in our area, but they work so closely with us that we're, we're very um, interrelated with all the the faiths, so and not one stands out as a dominant faith, but we're all an integral part of it, and everybody's equally important, and their, their faith background and their faith beliefs are just as important. And so our goal is really to help people to understand about other people's faith, because when you don't do that, then you're fearful about who they are and what they practice and what their temples or their mosques are like. So through the years, we have opened that up for people and we have programs many times a year, but in month we have what we call an interfaith month where people are highly encouraged not only to open up their places of worship for visitors, but to attend those. So you can go to the Friday night prayers at the mosque and see that the families are just like you. They're moms and dads with children and worried about the rent or worried about their job or schooling. They're just like us, but they just have a different faith. So then once you've established that, you don't need to be fearful of that. Then you can build a relationship where it doesn't make you want to be a Muslim or a Hindu. It strengthens your own faith. You see the intensity of their faith in themselves, and then you re-examine your own And it gives you a whole new vision of who you are. And so it's not trying to give a a homogenous group of faith people. It's to try and define your faith well, but to get along with all of these other um, faith groups. And that we are very successful here in Salt Lake with that. And I don't know if everybody living here knows that. But we're probably one of the top three cities in the country that has such a successful program.
2: Usually this is the month of February. Yeah, And uh, I read about bus tours even. Like yeah, we pe- do. People get yeah. on the bus tour they and they go to, to a synagogue and to a mosque.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this year we did. We went to the synagogue with uh, Rabbi Benny Zippel, which is very conservative. And then we went to the Bosnian uh, mosque. And, uh, I mean, two such diverse groups. But everybody loves that. They love that, to get a glimpse, to see, oh, I understand now, you know, I, mm. it's... It's just a wonderful thing. But we, we have many events during that month. And uh, we've toured, you know, like the LDS History Museum. We've been to all parts of the LDS properties to where they do all of the ancestry. and But um, we also include all of these other faiths as well.
2: You said something interesting about fear. I had a quote as I was thinking about your work. This is from Thomas Merton. Oh, yeah, who was no, uh, a, a yeah. famous monk-slash-philosopher-slash-priest-author, yes. Yes. whatever. Yes. Uh, this quote, it says, A faith that is afraid of other people is not faith at all.
0: Correct.
2: And that seems to be what you're talking about. Where does fear come from in a religious context like that? Do you know? I'm I'm asking you unanswerable questions. I just love <laughs> to know what you're thinking.
0: Um, well, there is fear, and it's just fear of they're different from ourselves. And you see it in not only in the religious side of life, you see it in our everyday life, mm. um, that you don't know that person, so you're fearful about who they are. You know, maybe I shouldn't get too close, or maybe I shouldn't accept this from them. Or, but it's exactly the same in you know, Maybe why do they say they have a God? You know, I, I'm the one who has the God. You know, what, where does that come from? It is. It's just a not tangible. It's just a, an inherent fear of the unknowing. And,
2: and is that something that needs to happen a, as we grow? I mean, we each typically will grow up in a certain faith tradition from our yeah. parents yeah. or grandparents yeah. or, or community we're in. And the idea of this is the way and then opening that somebody else can feel exactly the same about the way mm-hmm. they were raised... Mm-hmm and giving us space for that. I mean, that is, it seems to me, a mental change or a heart change that you have to allow that for others. You do. If you expect to hold to it yourself and be respected for right, it.
0: Right, exactly, exactly. And, and I think it's you know, just looking outside yourself. You don't have to change yourself. You don't have to change your religion. You don't have to change your beliefs. You don't have to change anything in your daily structure. But it's understanding that there are other people outside of you that have a similar structure with a faith and and ideas of life and and their hopes for the future it's a growth. You, I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. And you, you have to open yourself up to have thoughts of your own and not listen to others. I mean, you could read the news, you could listen to TV, you could talk to other neighbors, and they will try and convince you otherwise. But you have to take that inward and say, I really... I am not special in this world, I'm equal to everybody else, and if this is the way they feel, then I need to understand why they feel that way and what it is that holds them so close to that. And when you realize that the intensity is still the same as yours, then it's much more manageable in uh, being able to reach out to people and and you develop this relationship, a strong relationship. I actually, when I came here, I. Joined a community is called Community of Hope, which is how I know about Thomas Merton. But it's a Benedictine lay ministry for chaplains. So it is, we don't call ourselves chaplains. We're not trained as chaplains. But we do go through a fairly significant training to be able to go out and either work with hospital patients or with people in nursing homes. Or um, some of our members have been historians taking life histories of people who have cancer, maybe. And I opted to go to an Alzheimer's unit which would never have been what I thought was my choice, but it so happened that—
2: From neonatal to—
0: Correct, it, correct. lifespan end of life, yeah. So uh, for six years I did that and went and uh, visited people with Alzheimer's. It was an amazing growth experience for me. Not necessarily faith because I didn't ever ask them what their faiths were. But, of course, most of the um, relationship was nonverbal. But it was a great time for me to recognize the little nuggets of personality that even when it appears outwardly that all of it's gone, they don't recognize people, you know there is this nugget and you see this little moment of time when the real person comes out just for a few seconds. Can
2: you tell me about gone. that or do you have an example?
0: uh I'll be talking I maybe talking to somebody after dinner and uh I talk a lot. I mean, they don't talk a lot, but I, I talk a lot. <laughs> and, and I sort of come up with the answers sometimes for them, but sometimes you'll ask a question maybe about a family member, and they're usually, unfortunately, that's the forgetting part that comes very early in the more severe form of, of Alzheimer's, and they don't recognize people, but suddenly they will, and they'll remember a situation, maybe a birthday of somebody or a wedding of somebody or something they did as a child. And it's like, oh my gosh! And they're in the present just for a short period of time, and then it's gone. I always felt like I wanted to write a book about all of this because it was—it was just a fascinating thing. Because I think we all have that nugget in ourselves, and whether we call that the spirit or—I uh, think that's so unique to everybody. That's why I believe that we weren't all just factory-produced. <laughs> <That, laughs> We have this nugget, and I think it's our spirit that lives on forever. I don't necessarily feel that we will move on as me, as a person, but I feel that that nugget that is you, which is so different from yourself or anybody else that you come in touch with, is the thing that stays on and uh, may come back in another form, I don't know, with somebody else. But um, I think that's the piece that is preserved and goes on into whatever life follows this one. And I feel there is one.
2: Is that a spiritual... Activity or a religious experience for you to recognize that in another person?
0: It's not really a religious experience. It more is just recognizing what is their core feature, what is is it about them that makes them different, even from like their twin maybe Mm. or a sibling. I think that's very strong, and I think that's where the God is. I think that's what God has for us as individuals, that that will never go away, never go away.
2: What are the moments or the things that make you feel most in contact with the divine or connected in some way?
0: Well, I have a ritual every day uh, in the evening. We have a little booklet that's produced by the Episcopal Church. It's called Day by Day, and it has a a reading from one of the Gospels or sometimes the Old Testament. And then somebody will have written their feeling about that. There's an author for the month. And then you're asked to read all of the different um, parts of, of the Bible that have that reference in them. And I do that faithfully every day, without fail, even if it's 2.30 in the morning and I'm just going to bed. <laughs> I still do it. And that's when I feel the closest. And that's when if I ha- you know make a prayer or feel I want to communicate with God, I can do that so easily. I do meditate, so a the- little bit of it comes from that. But... I have this vision that's been with me for years that I can think of God and he isn't a person but there's something there and I visualize this this landscape of just rock and and some vegetation but a wind constantly blowing across it nothing you know in the distance just this this landscape and that's where he is but I can also feel my family my mom and my dad and other family members and in that space. And it's extremely comforting. And it's then when I can say a prayer for something. Um, I recently had uh, some hip surgery and I didn't recover very well. And I wasn't asking him to heal me, but just help me, help me get through this and this depression of, of not being able to get well. And uh, it was just so, I mean, just easy and comfortable and comforting to be able to do that.
2: Josie Stone is the current chair of the Salt Lake Interfaith Roundtable. Thank you, Josie, for speaking with me today in good faith.
0: I just um, appreciate this opportunity because, you know, sometimes I don't think we evaluate ourselves very often and think about these things. They become, you know, maybe a daily activity or you're busy with other things. But in the back of your mind, you know you have these values and you know that that's very meaningful to you. And it, it certainly is to me. So... Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear more about the importance of faith to refugees, something Josie Stone says adds to the strength of our communities. And we'll hear a panel of listeners discuss the ideas she presented. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief.
0: I think one of the things that has really strengthened the interfaith relationships here in our valley has been the fact that Utah is so welcoming to refugees from other countries. And with them, they bring all of their beautiful culture, tradition, and faith to us and continue to maintain that while trying to manage their lives in a, a highly different society. But it has really added to a great cultural expansion in this whole area. We've been blessed by that, and we'll continue to be blessed by that.
2: I thought this would be a good time to dig just a little deeper into that, what that entails exactly. And I'm in the office of Asha Parak now. She is the director of the Refugee Services Office for the state of Utah. Asha, thank you for speaking with me.
3: Oh, you're welcome.
2: This must change from year to year, but is there sort of an average that you expect or plan for here in the state?
3: Prior to President Trump, Utah welcomed about 1,200 refugees per year. Since the president has been in office and made some changes, last year both resettlement agencies together had about 800 refugees, and this year the numbers plummeted even more. So the president set the ceiling this year to be 45,000, and under Obama it was 85,000. So it's been drastically reduced nationally, and I think to date both resettlement agencies have seen their numbers really low this year, about 300 total, which is unheard of. So,
2: And that's not because there are fewer refugees in the world.
3: There are more refugees in the world, so there are more people that need safe haven, but the United States has made the decision under this president to decrease the numbers of people that we welcome into our country.
2: Do you agree with uh, Josie Stone that Utah has been a welcoming place historically for refugees?
3: Absolutely. I think the best person that I've heard talk about this most recently is Governor Herbert. So I was at a bill signing that he did related to refugees and driver's license, and he said at that signing... We have a great appreciation for you speaking to refugees in the audience, and we're honored to have you here in our state. I want you to feel welcome and loved and cared for. And I think his statement really illustrates how people in the state overall have uh, welcomed refugees.
2: What countries have these refugees come from?
3: Utah has a large population of the refugees that are resettled here um, Congolese, um, people from the Democratic Republic of Congo. We have a large Sudanese and South Sudanese community, both from Africa. And then we have also people from Burma, Karen and Kareni refugees in our state, right? And then Bhutanese, there's a, also a pretty sizable group of Bhutanese refugees. So those are some of the larger groups. I mean, there's some other groups as well. Religions really vary. We have a lot of Muslim refugees, and I think prior to these changes that happened, about 50% of people that came into Utah from these various countries were Muslim. That percentage has really shifted with all of the changes that have happened. But the Bhutanese, for example, are Hindu or Buddhist, and also the Burmese. And then, so there's a Swahili-speaking LDS ward and a Karen ward and also a Bhutanese ward. So that spans, I think, a wide range of faiths.
2: Do you see being involved in a faith community as an important part of refugees finding a home here and really assimilating?
3: More importantly, I think refugees feel that's important. So often, not always, but but refugees are fleeing religious persecution in their home countries. You know, that's one of the freedoms they really take to heart. So when they come here, they really are looking for some ways to practice their faith and to do it in a way that is really validating to who they are. And I recently went to a Buddhist Bhutanese event. I mean, it was just a very beautiful event about peace and love and people had these blessings that just make you feel healed when you leave. And as I was exiting, this gentleman came to me and said, you know, we're a very small group in our community, but this is very important to us. We want to make sure our children have the opportunity to learn about this and feel the sense of community that we have felt. I think recently, refugees have been very maligned in our country, but it's a myth. Refugees are people who have experienced a lot of suffering and pain, and they are stateless people looking for a home. And they come here with no ill intent. They are looking for a place to set down roots and call their own and, you know, raise their families. And They want to contribute. They add to our workforce in Utah. They're interested in working. They make a great contribution to our state. They bring a diversity that enriches us. They're just a great part of our community. So when they feel welcomed here, that only helps them to show forth more of the gifts. So I think, you know, the more love and support we can offer, refugee communities and refugee individuals, I think the more we will benefit as a community.
2: Is it possible to be committed spiritually while not holding to any particular faith or denomination? What things cause you to see the hand of God in your life? And do the faith practices of others in your community strengthen your own faith and desire to lift others through your time, your money, your personal gifts? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. Teresa Raymond is over closed captioning at BYU TV. She loves her family and reading. Whitney Gibbons is a student producer here at BYU Radio. When she's on the clock and when she's off, she's an author and illustrator with too many projects to keep track of. Sandy Briscoe is a mother of six, grandmother of two. She teaches religion to special needs students and loves exploring the Red Rock country of Utah. Her family loves all things Danish after living in Denmark for two years. After a hiatus of 40 years, Marcus Smith is once again playing ping pong. It's because his kids want him to at least pretend he's still young.
4: When Josie Stone was talking about the interfaith tours that they do, sometimes it reminded me of a time when I went to High Holy Days. One of my very, very best friends in high school was very devoutly Jewish, and he brought me to High Holy Days, and I loved it. It was so beautiful. It was such a peaceful experience. And, and, you know, they brought out the Torah and they did all the readings and the cantor was doing his thing. And it was just, I just loved it so much. And I just have always loved the Jewish religion because it's just so deep. And it just really spoke to me, you know, how in- integrated God is in, in their life and everything that they do. And it's just, just something I so admire about that particular religion. I loved going to High Holy Days.
5: I just wish that I had had opportunities to go on the kind of a tour from church to church to church or synagogue or temple, whatever. When I was a child, I didn't have that. And I remember so well being in elementary school and then junior high, high school too. We didn't talk with our schoolmates about these things ever. We just didn't talk about them, and it was only after I had graduated from high school that I went back and said, "Oh, David was probably Jewish." You know, it was after the fact. Boy, that would have been such a good opportunity.
1: I grew up in a small town where everyone that I knew was pretty much the same religion. It was pretty homogeneous. But when I was in seventh grade, we moved to a larger city, and I went to an inner-city junior high school and was exposed to a whole lot of culture that I had never seen before. A whole lot of differences the year that I lived there, my two best friends, one was Jewish and one was atheist. And it was such a great experience for me at that age to recognize that not everybody sees things the same way I do.
5: Remind me how old you were? How old, When I was 12. That's pretty young. I do remember once going to a Baptist church when I was about five or six and Everybody had to sing this song, we'd lean forward and we sang, Jesus is knocking at my door, and then you'd rap on the pew in front of you. And I felt a little uncomfortable because we didn't do that in our church. But after that experience, really uh, very little until I became an adult.
1: It's really helpful, I think, to recognize, especially for kids to recognize that, as Josie mentioned, that people see things different. We believe that our way is the way, but they also believe their way is the way. That their viewpoint is just as valid as ours is, you know, that their beliefs are just as valid. Seeing that as a at a young age, my friends and I, these two young girls, the one that was Jewish and the one that was atheist, we would spend our lunch hours sitting together and discussing things, we would choose topics that were kind of interesting or controversial that, that we might have differences on and just specifically discuss them so we could learn about each other.
5: I think that fear precluded that in my experience. We All of us were fearful of ever hearing what other people experienced in their faiths.
4: I find that having... I, I've, I've known a f- people of a, quite a few different faiths. I l- used to live in a very diverse environment, and I think one of the great things about learning about other religions, really learning about them, is that you can be an advocate for them. So that if, if someone who doesn't know as much about that religion makes an uninformed statement, um, something that's just uninformed, you can say, oh, no, actually, this is how it is. And they feel really strongly about this particular principle. And you can advocate for them that, you know, these are fabulous people.
1: Agreed. So. Yeah.
4: I am pretty active on social media. I'm a writer.
6: And I have several stories that I write incrementally where I have like over a thousand readers and it's just fun because I will spin out these stories chapter by chapter. And with a lot of them, it's fun because I have a community base, and so they'll send me questions about the stories that I'm writing, and they'll try and guess things that come next, and they'll ask questions about backstory or things like that, and it helps me write the story. But when she was talking about how I don't think that God needs to answer every question that gets sent to him, I just had the moment of like, oh my gosh, because I get sent maybe even like a dozen questions sometimes a day. And I have to filter through all of those questions that I have, and sometimes I have questions where I'm like, you know, I'm not going to answer that right now because it would ruin the story, or I'm not going to answer that right now because it would distract from the important things. And it was just really fun to have that kind of realization as I was listening to what she was saying, because for me, all of a sudden, it was God is presenting the story of our lives, and it matters to him how we think about what we're going through and things like that. And so there's some questions that are important questions, but sometimes we don't need the answers, or we need to keep wondering about something, or he will present it in a different way that is a better context later. And so that was kind of a fun connection for me personally.
5: You know, what you're talking about there, Whitney, uh, reminds me, you're talking about God's, maybe his reticence in not answering everything. And Josie was talking about that too, the idea that God's not going to intervene and maybe answer every prayer, or even we're not going to have a sense of what he is doing with our lives or for us. And And so we're kind of left without that information. As I was listening to Josie, I just couldn't help but think that isn't this perhaps a common denominator amongst all these different religions that we want to know? We want to know what's going on.
6: It would be nice. (laughs) It would be so
5: helpful, we think. And uh, she asserted that... Uh, that might not be the point of it. That maybe we are supposed to solve these things. And she got into quite a list of the the problems. She she focused on war. She talked about hunger and food issues, food inequality, uh, the social issues that the younger generation is very engaged in. It was kind of like what do they call it? A do-it-yourself kind of project. This life thing of ours, where God is going to leave us without. You know, we're not marionette puppets on the ends of strings where he's just pulling those strings and we just do exactly what it we actually have to be responsible. And I was on board with that.
4: When she talked about the, the food shortages and and talking about God not always, you know, giving you all the answers, I remember there was a time when my husband had gotten laid off. And so neither of us were working. I did have a, a small job, but it made very little money, like 20 bucks or something a week. It was really small. and um, And trying to feed... You know, a family of four boys. It's like, wow, that's kind of hard. But I remember praying for help for how can I do this? How can I feed these little boys? And so I'd go into the grocery store with this 20 bucks and I would be inspired to like, get like one or two things. And like, my mind would be filled with like, oh, if I got blueberries, I can make blueberry muffins, and we can make blueberry pancakes. And we can do this and this and this. And just this information was kind of downloaded. I mean, he didn't do it for me. No one gave us extra money or anything like that. But I was inspired with thoughts that could help me do what I needed to do for my family and and for myself. And that was really kind of cool. And the sad thing was, was after we came out of that financial crisis that that wasn't there anymore because Heavenly Father needed to uh, have me do that work myself.
5: He was busy helping someone else. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this issue of food was very important to Josie. She lingered on that topic. And I don't know that I share this with my fellow believers in my faith, but food inequality and where people get their sustenance from To me, that's like basic to my religion. Of course, I'm a Christian, and so I think about who is my neighbor, the words of Christ. I think about the Good Samaritan, the parable from the Bible, who am I supposed to help, who is in need, the fundamental – Activities we do of of helping people just to survive, to be fed and clothed, to get medicine. These kinds of things. Well, when Josie was talking about it, she said the rising generation of young people, they don't they don't want to sit around and hear people just talk forever. They want to be engaged and solve some of these problems. And activism, you know, when I was growing up, activism was not my parents' favorite word necessarily in the <laughs> 60s that kind of came with all sorts of connotations. But to actually do something that means that you're helping, that you're lifting people in need. That's basic religion, to to enact the ideas and and, and actually do some
0: good.
1: I noticed that when Josie was speaking about that, talking about millennials and the, the generation after them as they are really interested in social equality and some topics that maybe they've paid more attention to than I did when I was that age. One of my sons is studying sociology. He's working on his Ph.D. right now, and he does a lot of work with um, getting water to people or food inequality and that sort of thing. And in his reading, he reads, you know, with all the reading that he has to do, he's really opened my eyes. I really have found it helpful to listen to this younger generation and to hear some of these ideas that have helped broaden my view and my understanding of my role of how I help my neighbor. I'm glad that I've got these younger people that can say, you know, you really should read this book or you should think about this and, you know, think beyond your own comfortable situation. That's been helpful.
5: I need more of your attitude because I often think that our generation figured it all out.
6: (laughs) I think as a millennial, there's some very interesting viewpoint differences that kind of contribute to that. I think one thing is that we do have the Internet, that we do have social media, that we automatically feel so much more connected in a very personal way, in a very human way to so many people with the social media work that I do with the platform that I operate on, one of my best friends is from Russia and she's an illustrator that I work with on some projects and I have other friends that are writers where one is in California but another one is in Thailand and I have friends that are in Portugal and because English is kind of the language of the social media that I use, Um, we can all communicate, but you don't even realize that like, oh, they're from a different country, which I feel like in generations past, that's so much more of a gap that you couldn't bridge automatically. You would have to be in Portugal or they would have to be in America. But the world that we live in now, especially with millennials, we are automatically connected across countries and across religions where you learn to love someone and to appreciate them for their ideas and the contributions that they make creatively before you realize that they are a Jewish person from New York or that they are a atheist person in Russia. And so instead of perhaps making broader judgment calls on who someone is and putting them into a box, like it might be tempting to do, like with stereotypes, I feel like Potentially, as millennials, you learn to see someone based on what they actually do and what they actually contribute and how they actually make you feel. And I think that brings a level of charity that you're able to show people because you see them as people first and you see them as religions or ethnicities or country citizens second. And I think that's a really important part of how society is kind of changing and why millennials are able to bring something different to the table like that.
1: That is beautiful. And that Whitney, that makes me appreciate social media, which I sometimes gripe a little bit about.
6: <laughs> There's both sides
1: <laughs> it, there are both sides, but that really makes me appreciate all the positives and the great contribution that it is to our society. Mm-hmm.
5: And when I hear you saying that, I just have to wonder, is this for real? You know, I just have to wonder if there is greater charity made possible by these connections that maybe bracket off religion for a little while. And then the religious overlays come in secondarily in your experience in talking to people abroad uh, or or who are different from you. I would imagine that some of those aspects of religion never even come up at all, but they do come up occasionally and-
6: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There is a maturing of internet culture that is happening. When the internet started, it became basically a country that everyone could go to online, and nobody knew how to act. And so things were really messy for the first 10 or 15 years. But there's coming a point where those of us who have grown up with the internet were kind of developing kind of an etiquette and standards. And now if you act appropriately, you get more attention with like community and making friends. And if you don't act appropriately, people are like, oh, they must be a really old person on the internet (laughs) because they don't always, sometimes they get on their Facebook and all they do is yell about politics. But usually it's the younger people who, well, we're here to actually have fun and connect with people and be creative. And so it's actually the older people often who are really uncomfortable to be around on the internet because they are not interested in becoming a good internet citizen. They're just interested in having a platform to yell really loud often. And so it is really interesting where the friends that I've really connected with, sharing religion is something that is actually a really meaningful experience because I had actually a conversation one time with my best internet friend. She's a co-author that I work with a lot. And there was the one time where she was like, hey, so I understand if you don't want to talk about this, but I was wondering, are you Mormon? And I was like, yes, I am. How could you tell? She's like, oh, just some things. And, and then we ended up having this really long, like, two-hour conversation all about what the LDS church believed and how it's affected my life. And she was telling me about how she comes from, like, a Christian background and, like, how she's done that. And it ended up being just this amazing give-and-take conversation that made us even better friends.
5: So what about this fear aspect, though, that Josie was talking about? Is the fear obviated? Does it just dissipate because you already have a a rapport on other topics because you've already established this wonderful, happy family of millennials who love the Internet and are friends?
6: Well, there is a respect. There is a very much respect of I come here to have a good time. And so it's always just very much feeling what people are comfortable with. Like I have a friend who – a writer friend and she'll just say that she's Jewish on her posts and that's great. Um, But other people, they don't want to talk about it. And so you just respect that boundary. But it's very much being aware of other people and being aware and sensing what is fearful for somebody that someone else might want to talk about. And it's very much thinking about others' boundaries before trying to put your own on them. And it's not like that all over the Internet. And there's a lot of places where you still have to be careful, like real life. But I feel like there's a lot of potential for that, and especially the areas in the community that I've tried to build up, especially around my work, it's very conducive to that, and it's really exciting.
1: I want to talk for a minute about what Josie said about working with Alzheimer's patients. As she was talking about that, I thought about the work that I do with students with disabilities as I teach disabled students, and there's quite a range of disabilities, some students with autism and some that have physical limitations, and some with mental limitations. I teach students that are—some are completely nonverbal, and particularly those that can't communicate with me in ways that I ordinarily do, those that are nonverbal. It's really inspiring as we—I teach religion, and as we talk about things of the Spirit and talk about God, even though they can't express things with words— there are times when I see something in their eyes that I think is that nugget she was talking about. That's something that's deep within us that is that peace of God that I believe every person on earth has. Whether they can express it, whether we can connect with it or not, I believe that we all have that, that nugget of deity in us. And I see that in these sweet, sweet students that I work with. When I started teaching teaching, Disabled students, I didn't have that much experience with it, and I feel like I came with some fear, and that's something I had to work through and kind of get rid of. We're all afraid of things that are unfamiliar, whether it's someone with different religious beliefs or different physical abilities or even a different color skin. Unfamiliar is something that makes us feel uncomfortable, and so I feel like fear is what holds us back from seeing that spark, that life. And from seeing the commonality that we have with really everyone around us, fear keeps us from seeing that.
4: I agree with you, Sandy. Um, I taught social studies one year. I had been teaching homeschoolers, but now I was teaching some children who are somewhat disadvantaged, who came from some very difficult life situations. And I was blessed to be able to be in a group of small group of kids, and I was able to see the value in these kids that were people really that they had been kind of discarded. They had been discounted and people were fearful of them. They thought some of these kids had been in jail. I was able to see the good in these people. And when you can see the good in someone, they just expand. They just just open up and and they start talking and you learn all these wonderful things about them. There's one boy, poor kid was totally addicted to some kind of high-caffeinated drink, and so much so that he was worried that he was damaging his health. And so we brainstormed away together how he could turn those into something he could sell on eBay. (laughs) And uh, But it was just so much fun to see that growth. Do you see that in your students that you work with, that when you're able to see that nugget in them, Sandy, that they open up a little bit more?
1: One thing that I noticed as I started teaching this year— and there's one class that I teach only once a week, and they're the most severely disabled students. That's been challenging, but it's also been the thing that's brought me the most joy, the most satisfaction. And there's one student who is totally nonverbal and during class just kind of sits in the back and stares out the window or maybe shouts out and makes noises and you know doesn't appear to be really connecting at all. But after a few months of... Every week, I would specifically speak to this student, call them by name, greet them as they came into class, as they left. The thing that I've noticed is he looks for me and will come up and greet me now. I don't know that there's more than that. I, You know, nothing huge and dramatic. To me, it's kind of dramatic, though.
5: You know I, how to read the cues.
1: Yeah, and, and I believe that we have a relationship now. I feel there's something in his eyes when he sees me that just really touches my heart.
5: And Josie called that a nugget. Yeah. It's a funny term. (laughs) I'm not going to add it to my theology that we all have nuggets inside us. (laughs) It's kind of good.
6: So before we end, I definitely want to circle back to um, what Josie was saying about kind of a daily ritual, kind of the conversation that she has with God. Because I feel like definitely in my own life, the times in my life when I felt most on top of things and most just consistently at peace and put together, despite what might be actually going on in my life, just mentally, physically, spiritually, just together is when God, when connecting with him is not even a priority, but just a, f- a way of thinking, I think for me, where it's not so much, oh, I got to I gotta pray and I got to do my scripture study because then like I'll have punched my ticket for the day. I'll punch my spiritual card got my hours in, but when I've been able to think about it as I need to read the scriptures because that will put me in a good frame of mind for today. And I need to be praying throughout the day because having God by my side is something that is consistently important for me. I just really like what she was saying about that just being a constant, something bigger than even just something that you do, but just kind of a way that you are.
2: That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Teresa, Whitney, Sandy, and Marcus, to Asha Parekh, and especially to Josie Stone for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation. We welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our student producer is Lisey Clegg, production assistants from Christine Knuckleby and Marcus Smith. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join us again soon right here in Good Faith.